Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Amen. Last week, as we continued our study of the book of Exodus, uh, I, as a dog lover, uh, made some comments about cats. And, um, and if this is like your second time here, okay, please know that I only talk about cats about every five years, all right? But, but every time that I do, and it's totally in jest, every time that I do, I, I get the same response. And so every time, everybody who comes up to me to talk to me about the message after the service says nothing about the message and everything about the cats. Like, I left last week, I'm thinking, good grief, did anybody hear anything else that I said? I mean, because it's, you know, the cat stuff is the throwaway stuff. The other stuff's the important stuff. And I'm going to share two comments with you because I thought they were great. So, so one comment, I had a precious lady come up to me after one of the services and and she had a smile on her face, so I knew this was going to be okay, you know. And so she came to me, and she's a cat lover, and she said, you know, Tom, she said, do you think that you could like a cat that behaves like a dog? And I said, I don't know. Is it still a cat? <laughs> it's a short conversation, right? My favorite one was a text message that I got last Sunday afternoon uh, from a friend of mine. And I, I'm not going to tell you who it is because I, I don't want to turn the cat lovers against him. If I was going to tell you who it is, I would say that it's Pat Fitzgibbon, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. So Pat, this guy, <clears throat> this other person, this anonymous friend texted me, and this is all the text said. It just said, spell dog backwards. <laughs> I mean, boom. Boom. That's it. Do you need it to see any more than that? I mean, it's over right there, right? All right, it's ridiculous. But the story of the Exodus is not ridiculous. It's serious, isn't it? And I hope you haven't forgotten it because today as we come to chapters 9 and 10, we're just picking up on what we've already talked about in chapters 7 and 8 where, where began this great context between God, the God of everything, the God who is the king of the universe, of everything and of everyone, a great contest between God and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who holds God's people, the Israelites, in slavery, whereas we'll see next week, they have been enslaved for 430 years. And what is God doing? He's delivering them. But he's not just offering deliverance to them. 
He's offering deliverance also to the Egyptians. And you're like, well, what do they need to be delivered from? I thought they were the slaveholders, and they were. They need to be delivered from a far greater slavery than the Israelites. They need to be delivered from the futility, from the bondage, from the slavery that is theirs and that is ours when we take our little lives and bend them around to little gods that in the end we come to discover don't even exist. They are nothing. Good grief to fashion your life around nothing? How horrifying. And so what is God doing through this sequence of plagues? He's coming to Moses. He's coming to the Israelites. He's coming to Pharaoh. He's coming to the Egyptians. He's coming to us. And plague after plague after plague after plague, he is saying something that we talked about last week. He's saying, listen, I alone am God, and I am the only God in all the earth. So big statement. Worth listening to. And we talked about the fact that that sounds kind of arrogant. Like, that is definitely not a politically correct statement. I don't know what God was thinking. Clearly, that is not something that we're happy about today. But I want you to think about it for a minute because it's not arrogant if it's true. If it's true, then it's just a fact. It's just true. And it's not an arrogance that's unique to Christianity, is it? Because every God in every religion claims to have some hold on some unique aspect of the truth. Otherwise, they wouldn't even exist. And frankly, every irreligious person also claims to have some hold, some aspect of the truth. They believe in their position that God doesn't exist or or that religion is terrible or both, all of the above. And that everyone else who agrees with them, by the way, are right about that. Well, what is that if not an exclusive truth claim? It's not arrogance. It's just the nature of this conversation. And as we saw last week, this is a conversation that Pharaoh himself has raised. When Moses went to him the first of many times now that we've seen and said those iconic words, thus says the Lord of Israel, let my people go. You know, I mean, when he stopped laughing, Pharaoh said, and I quote, Exodus 5 verse 2, Moses, who is the Lord? Like, who is this God of yours that I, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, should obey his voice? Because Moses, I too am worshiped as a God. Oh, 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 and by the way, I live in a land full of gods. So what makes your God special? Like, why should I obey his voice as opposed to my own voice, as opposed to the voice of any of this whole pantheon of Egyptian gods? And what did God do in response? What was his answer? Well, he started with the Nile River. And he made the waters of the Nile River and all of its tributaries that feed the land of Egypt and turned the desert into a green, lush garden that is the nation of Egypt, at least at the beginning of the plagues. He turned it into blood, which would be disturbing to any of us, but it's more disturbing to the Egyptians. Why? Because they believed, as we talked about last week, that the Nile River and all of its tributaries was the circulatory system of their great god Osiris, the god of life, the god of resurrection, the one who is colored in green. Why? Because that's what he turns the desert into. And that the waters of life, that's the emblem of life in the desert water, that flow through his circulatory system are the bloodstream of Osiris. So then what do the Egyptians think when the bloodstream of Osiris ceased to flow with the emblem of life and began to flow with the emblem of death? Good grief, what happened to Osiris? I'm going to give you the answer. Nothing, and here's why. Because he doesn't exist. Because he is nothing. God's going, if you want to know who the God of life and resurrection is, there's only one. That's me. But Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses to listen. And so God says, all right, 
This time we're going to send frogs. So he sends a plague that comes up out of the water and up onto the dry ground in the form of frogs. Now, why does he do that? Because it's a direct shot at their Egyptian god, Heket, who's the goddess of fertility. She has the head of a frog. You can see that. God says, look, if you want to see fertility, I'll show you fertility, and I'm going to do it ironically. I'm going to do it in the form of frogs. Your frog god can't even do this. So here they come. She's not of much help. Why? She's nothing. She doesn't exist. But that doesn't work either. Pharaoh refuses to listen. He hardens his heart. God says, all right, that's fine. I'm going to send a plague that moves up out of the earth now and up into the air. I'm going to send gnats, like hordes of gnats, swarms of gnats, drive you crazy with gnats, gnats, okay? Which is a direct shot at the Egyptian god Geb. He's the god of the earth, or is he? God's going, no, 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 he's nothing. I'm the God of the earth. It's like he's jumping up and down and going, guys, come on. You have to see this. But Pharaoh at least doesn't see this. He hardens his heart and the Lord sends flies, which is a direct shot at the Egyptian god Kephri, who is the God of creation. The God of creation? You can see him in the middle. He has the head of a fly and wings. There he is. Do you know what he is? He's a picture and nothing more. And with that plague, God begins to draw a line that demarcates, that that quadrants off his people from all of these different plagues that now begin to come. And what is he doing with that? He created, and I I know it's a tacky joke, but it was fun anyway. He creates a no-fly zone for Israel, all right? So, So no flies for Israel, flies on all of the Egyptians. It's mercy, to the Egyptians. What is God saying? He's going, hey, you are the enslaved ones. Freedom is found in enslaving yourself to me. You can enter into the no-fly zone, but you're going to do it by faith. Join my people, which in the end, when we see them leave eventually, many Egyptians do. We see evidence of that even today. But Pharaoh is not one of them. So he refuses to listen. He hardens his heart. And that's where we pick it up today in Exodus 9, beginning in verse 1. Where Moses says this. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Here we go. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are out in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks, which is a direct shot, incidentally, at the Egyptian god Hathor, who has horns on her head. She's the goddess of love and protection. She's not able to show much love, and she gives zero protection because she doesn't exist is kind of God's point. Stop worshiping gods that, that are no gods. And as with the plague of the flies, the Lord, we read, will once again make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord, it says, even set a time 
saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And sure enough, the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And notwithstanding all that Pharaoh has seen already up to this point, he still doesn't believe the word of the Lord. And so Pharaoh sent some guys to go see if the livestock of Israel was actually still alive. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But here again, we read that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So God sent a plague of boils upon the Egyptians. A direct shot at the goddess Isis. She's the goddess of health and medicine. She's also thought to be the divine mother of Pharaoh, at least in their mythology. And Pharaoh's mom is not much help. Boils covered the people of Israel, I mean the people of Egypt. Even the magicians of Egypt who, who were told stood up against Moses early on in the plague sequence literally now cannot stand because of all the boils on their body. And yet Pharaoh refuses to listen and he hardens his heart. And so God sends a plague of hail which is directed at the Egyptian god Newt who was the sky goddess. You can see her in the picture with her really long body covered in stars, she crouches over the earth in such a way, at least in their mythology, as to safeguard the earth from things like hail. And so God says, you know what, I'm going to send a hailstorm that like no hailstorm ever before. And it is going to be utterly devastating. And here's what this plague does. It draws a line that not only draws a line of demarcation between the Egyptians and the Israelites, but now even between Egyptian and Egyptian. Why? Because what's coming is published throughout the land. Tomorrow the, the hail is coming. So saith the God of Israel, you know? And some of the Egyptians are going, yeah, I think I believe this. Like I've seen enough at this point to realize that if the God of Israel says the hail is coming, she's not going to be able to stop it if she even exists. And so what happens is the Egyptians who believe this gather up their kids and, you know, they get the dog. And I mean, you know, who knows where the cat's at? I mean, hopefully the cat's inside. <laughs> we'll see. Get them all inside. They, they batten down the hatches. They get ready for the hailstorm and they survive. The Egyptians who don't, who just go about their day the way they ordinarily would have done, are destroyed by the hailstorm. That's pretty severe. That's harsh. But I think it illustrates a point, which is that, you know, what we're talking about matters. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. C.S. Lewis says Christianity is either of utmost importance or it is of no importance at all. But what it cannot be is moderately important. And if you think it through, how can that not be the case? The most important thing about me and about you is what we think about God, or in the Egyptians' case, the gods. But this one doesn't work either. According to God's sovereign plan, Pharaoh refuses to listen. He hardens his heart. And so now God sends locusts, which is a plague that's directed against the Egyptian god Seth, who is the god of the storm. But he's also the god of chaos, and I think that that matters. So God, through a windstorm, gathers up the locusts, and he loads them up in the land of Egypt, covers the land of Egypt with these locusts. And then through a windstorm later on, he gathers them up again and takes them all out. And in between, here's what they do. They eat every living green thing that still exists in the land of Egypt after the utter devastation of all of the previous plagues. And you say, good 
grief, what is the Lord doing to Egypt? And I think the answer to that actually is that he's decreating Egypt. And here's why I say that. Because the same man who writes this story wrote the creation story where we find a world that God has created that is dark, that is disordered, it's chaotic, and is empty. And what does he do? He says, let there be light. And then he divides the light from the darkness and the day from the night. He divides the waters above from the waters below, the sky, the sea. He brings forth it. What is he doing? He introduces light. He introduces order. And then what does he do? He fills all things. What has God done through these plagues? He has taken this land of Egypt, which was known throughout all of the world for its great abundance because of the Nile River and all of the, the tributaries up in the delta, wealthy, full land, and he has utterly emptied it. That which is ordered is now in chaos. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, and what's the next plague? He makes the sun go dark. You see how it works? We're going backwards in the creation story. After Pharaoh hardens his heart, God finishes his decreation of the land of Egypt by darkening the sun with a darkness so deep that it can literally be felt except by the Israelites because they're exempt. It's light there and it's dark. Hang on to this for three days. It's remarkable. By the way, that's a direct refutation of the Egyptian god Ra. He's the sun god. You can see the solar disk on his head. And he was thought to be the divine father of Pharaoh. So I'm, I'm thinking his divine mom and dad are not coming through for him because they're just a picture and nothing more. And God in His mercy, His generous justice, if you will, is coming forward and going, hey, guys, don't miss that. I and I alone am the God well worth listening to. And what that does is it brings us to the final plague that we'll look at next week with the Passover. But for now, I think what we need to do is just stop and go, okay, so I get the message for Moses, and I get the message for the Israelites, and I get the message for Pharaoh, and I get the message for the Egyptian. I, I just don't know what the message is for me. So then what is the message for us? It's the same message as the message to the Egyptians. It's God coming to us and saying, I, I'm the only God like in all the earth. I know that's a big statement. Really, I do. Worth listening to, okay? And it's not arrogant if it's true. It's the nature of the conversation. Every God claims it. But not every God delivers. And what he's saying is, if you live your life for anyone or anything less than me, you have given your life away to nothing. Expecting all kinds of things that aren't coming. It's slavery. It's bondage. It's futility. And I'm here to set you free if, if you'll be set free. If you'll get the message. If you'll listen, if you'll come to me and join my people through faith in Jesus. And you say, well, free from what? From futility, from decreation, and from darkness. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 115, Joyce read it. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then he says this, he says, why should the nations, meaning all of the unbelieving nations who lived all around Israel when this was written, why should the nation say, where is their God? But, I mean, honestly, why would they not say that? 
Their gods were made of stone, they were made of wood, they were made of silver, they were made of gold, they were placed in places that you could, you know, map quest to and actually go physically see. In other words, they were sensible to our five senses as human beings, see, smell, hear, taste, touch. But the God of Israel, where is he? Can't do that with him. So I kind of get the question, why should the nation say, where is their God? Because we can't map quest him. So the psalmist replies to that, and he says, our God is in the heavens, and unlike your little g, ODS gods, that can do nothing, he's saying, our God does all that he pleases, and then he says this, and it's a commentary on anything that we worship that isn't the true and the living God. He says, their idols are made of silver and gold. Truth be known, that's true for a lot of us too, is it not? It is. The work of human hands, be they mine or yours. And now listen to this. He says, they, these gods, have mouths, but they do not speak. So then if silver and gold is your God and you need a word from your God, it's not coming. But not only that, they have eyes, but they do not see, which means that they do not see you. They have ears, but they do not hear your cries for help or your shouts of praise. They have noses, but they do not smell. The point being that they are completely insensible. They can do nothing. They can know nothing. They're of no use or value to you. They have hands, but they do not feel or help. Feet, but they do not walk or run to your aid, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then here is his climactic point. This is the whole reason he's been saying all of this. He says to me, and he says to you, and he says to everybody else, those who make them become just like them, and so do all who trust in them. It's profound. You get to the end of your life and go, what was that all about? Louis Giglio said this, and I think it's a great quote. He says, if you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character to death. If you worship stuff, your life will become material, void of eternal significance. If you give all your praise to the little G-O-D God, of you, then you'll become a disappointing little God, both to yourself and all those who trust in you. Simply put, he says, we become what we worship. And so then if you don't like who you're becoming, take a quick inventory of the things on the throne of your heart. He gets it. That's not dog and cat silly stuff. That's real life stuff. And I I would add to that and say, oh, and also, if you don't like where your life is going, well, then do the same thing. Take that inventory of the things on the throne of your heart. And I say that because here's what life looks like for those of us who harden our heart against the God who actually is, against his wisdom, against his word, against his purposes for us. And we listen to our own voices and we listen to the voice of other gods, mostly those who tell us what we want to hear. So really, it's about us. I mean, just be honest. Here's what happens. Futility, decreation, and darkness. And I'll give you two examples of like a thousand, okay? But just two, and they're common. God comes to us and he says, you shall have no one and nothing in your life more important than me. But if, for example, you take work, very common, and you make it more important to you than God. All right, God's not gonna hit your house with a hailstorm. It's not gonna make the water in your pool, you know, blood, which will ruin your pool pump and... I mean, it would be a bummer. He's not going to do that. But you will experience decreation in your family, 
in your physical health, in your emotional well-being, and at the end of your life, your work will be all that you have left. And then you'll leave it behind in death and you'll do that wondering if you accomplished anything, like if it was worth it. Did any of it matter? The other one is the Lord comes to us and he tells us to forgive the people who hurt us in life, but we don't want to do that. We want revenge. And everything and everyone around us tells us that we deserve revenge. We have a right, and we actually probably do have a right. But what does God do? He comes to us and says, listen, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Trust me with that. You need to forgive. And if you don't forgive, he's not going to cause a windstorm to blow a bunch of locusts into your yard and eat away at your grass and shrubs and all the new landscaping. And I, That's not going to happen. But that unforgiveness will eat away at you. It will leave you brown and barren and destitute. So then what did the invisible and tangible God, the I can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him God, of the heavens do to solve this for us, to set us free? Well, through a supernatural conception, he entered into this world as one of us. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came to us with a mouth that actually speaks and still does by his spirit and through his word to us today. If we have ears to listen, eyes that see then and now, ears that hear those people back then and you and I today, noses that smell, he's completely sensible being, and hands and feet that were stretched out and nailed to a cross where the self-proclaimed light of the world was extinguished in death and for how many days? Three. Every story speaks of him. You understand that, right? Until he took his life up again in resurrection, and you're like, man, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's not crazy at all. If God. Then it makes perfect sense. It is wonderful to know that as a man for humanity, there is a substitute to whom all of our idolatry has been nailed and put to death that we might be free of it and have life. He's calling us by the gospel, guys, out of darkness, out of chaos, out of emptiness, and into the kind of light and fullness and order that can only be found in a relationship with Him. And then here's this. As we learn to walk in relationship with Him, we end up living a life in which we discover at the end of it all that we have mouths that have actually said things that matter. Things about the Lord, things about Christ and His beauty, words of compassion and understanding. We've said things that endure, though we do not. We have eyes that have actually seen things that matter. The beauty of the Lord and the beauty of His creation and particularly of people created in His image. We have ears that have heard things that matter. We come to understand, to hear the voice of the Lord and the voice of people who need to know the same Lord and experience the same deliverance. We're all Egyptians, all of us being called into the people of God. We have noses that know the fragrance of that which is truly life as opposed to that which is actually death. We have hands that do work, that endure because they're participating in His work and that we have feet that after they lead us through this life, walking together with Him, will walk us through a valley that only He can walk with us, which is the valley of the shadow of death, and then to the place that He has prepared for us. That is an amazing hope. Why is the God of the Bible the only God on all the earth worth listening to? Arrogant as that may seem. 
because there is no other God on all the earth that even claims to deliver that, much less through a risen Jesus, actually accomplishes it for all who come to him in faith. And so with all that said, I want to ask you these two questions, okay? Do you like who you're becoming? And question number two, and it's the same cure. Do you like where your life is going? Because if you don't, then take a quick inventory of the things that are actually on the throne of your heart and lay them down in return for Jesus. John Calvin was a genius. He understood the human heart. One of the things he said is that the the human heart is an idol factory, meaning we manufacture idols all the time, which means that we need to repent of them all the time and turn from the futility and decreation and darkness that they bring when we worship them to the light and to the order and to the fullness of life in Jesus. So I would encourage you to do that this morning, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, uh, for the Savior who has come, the one who has lived the life that we have not, that of perfect worship and service to you, the one who then willingly in love for us that we might be delivered from futility and darkness, from the decreative effects of the selfishness and of the decisions by which we live, laid his life down as a substitute in our place that our debt to you might be repaid, paid in full, and that we might come to know what it is to walk through life together with him in freedom. So Spirit of God, I pray that you would awaken in us the humility that we need to to sense and see that, to to realize our own need for that, um, to bring ourselves such as we are to you, And to ask you to make us who you would have us to become. Because in the end, your judgment is better than ours. And in the end, that really will be discovered to be the answer to the question of who we also would like to become. So make us who you would have us to be. And lead us through life as you would dictate and deliver it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.